0: This is Only the Strong Survive, a podcast powered by Khan Media, where we dive deep into the world of business, leadership, and innovation. I'm your host, Dan Khan, and I'm honored to have you join us today. So let's get ready to learn some survival skills together. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Only the Strong Survive, a podcast produced by Khan Media. I'm Dan Kahn. We have a really cool episode for you today. And I don't normally do kind of an intro, but Larry Chen and I have been friends for a long time. We've worked together for about 15 years. And uh, the episode, we just kind of went straight into it. So I wanted to kind of tee things up a little bit before we dove straight into the episode and give you some background. Larry is one of the most accomplished photographers in automotive and motorsports, He has a YouTube channel. He has his own photography business. He does a lot of work for different major companies. He also has a show with Haggerty on YouTube. For quite a while, he was on the Hoonigan channel as well. Did a lot of stuff with Ken Block when Ken was still around. And he also is a Canon explorer of light, which means he is the only automotive photographer who's an ambassador for Canon camera company going around the world doing seminars, teaching people. His work is showcased on their site. So he's a really talented, really neat guy. And this episode is all about creativity. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy Larry. He is a delight. He is just a really, really neat person. I think you'll pick up on that pretty quickly on this episode. So enjoy the show.
1: You know, I'm just going to make a statement right here. It makes me feel really good about the car and car culture industry moving forward because we have people like you working so hard and just pushing the limit of what's possible. And then I can relate to you so much in that way because we've been working together for, I don't even know how many years now, 15 years?
0: 15 years. Something like that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So off camera, I asked you, how is it that you even have the time to do a podcast? When uh, your team reached out to me, I was like, no way. How is this even possible?
0: Yeah. Well, same. I'd say the same for you, my friend. You've got a a lot of Pretty awesome stuff in the background there, which is cool in your your shop. And you're everywhere, Larry. I think about that on a regular. Every time I see something new from you, I'm like, how is he doing all of this?
1: You know, the short answer is you can't take pictures and you can't tell the car culture story from your house. You know, you you can't do it from your couch. You have to go out and actually follow it and find it. There's just so much good stuff going on. And it's something that you can't even contain. It's going to happen whether I'm here or not. It's going to happen, honestly, even whether you're there or not, but us feeling the fire helps so much. Tomorrow morning, I'm flying to Italy for 10 days to shoot more episodes of our Haggerty show, Capturing Car Culture. I just did the final like draft of our first episode season opener for this year, which we've already shot half the season for Capturing Car Culture. We started the season off in Hong Kong. That was our first destination. We shot 10 days there, and then we shot... 10 days in Thailand. And then we shot an entire month in Japan. So that's 13 episodes already. Yeah, the the fourth country is going to be Italy and so on and so forth. I really pride myself in being able to travel, you know, because I'm not afraid of it. It's really interesting for me to tell the story worldwide about car culture, especially to the US audience, because a lot of times, especially us being in California, a lot of people like to complain about how tough it is for us to enjoy cars here, but it's not even doesn't even hold a candle to most of these countries that I travel to.
0: Well, let's dive into it. But first, we're going to back it up because we came in hot and I love that. And our guest today is none other than Larry Chen, photographer extraordinaire, media personality, man about town, car guy, SEMA's first content creator of the year. So Larry, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. That was such a big honor. My guys actually made the comment. They're like, you know, you opened the pamphlet, the playbill or what, whatever, the SEMA
0: yeah the, program booklet, type thing. yeah,
1: the program. And you look at, you know, the SEMA person of the year, all of these other categories that have been going on for so long, over 50 years, right? Yep. And then you look at the first name and then you go down the list and you look at the last name. They're like, moving forward forever, you're going to be the first name on that list. And I'm just like, oh my God, the weight of it. Really, I felt it on my shoulders, you know, and it's something that I think about all the time, pretty much every day, because the trophy is proudly displayed in my <laughs> office. And, and you know, when I walk in, I see it. It does mean a lot to me. And, and people like us, I just never expect anything like that. I just like to do this for fun. In fact, I feel like if I stop doing this, I'll probably just collapse. <laughs> you know, I have to continue doing this.
0: Yeah. It's it's an interesting thing. And that's actually so. our topic for today's show is creativity. And, and there's no better person, I think, at least in the little world that I operate in, to talk about creativity than Larry. So Larry, just to kind of start, and I, I think most people listening to this probably know who you are. If they don't, they at least know your work. But can you give us a little background on kind of what you do and, and where you came from?
1: Yeah. So I, I take pictures of cars.
0: Understatement of the year, but okay.
1: I grew up in Southern California, so it was only natural for me to fall in love with car culture. It started with a love and passion for driving, and I actually quit driving, autocross, time attack, and and building cars. I I quit all of that stuff. It It was a pretty amateur level, but I loved it. It was my passion, and I did it with friends, and that's how I fell in love with this. I quit all that to pursue photography and video, and now it's kind of come full circle where I'm getting back into driving as much as I can. You can see my Time Attack car, my Toyota SEMA build that I drive. I, I learn how to drift. I'm starting to get into everything, rally, whatever, just because I want to get back into what I actually truly love, which is actually driving the cars. While as much as I love content creation, it's just about doing both. And luckily, I am able to do both a lot of times at the same time when I'm at uh, these racetracks photographing these cars.
0: And you've got a hell of a resume. I mean, you shoot drift, you shoot time attack, but you've—I've seen your stuff: drag racing, Pikes Peak yeah. feature. I mean, we work together on feature photography, luxury stuff, OEM stuff. I mean, you it's—I
1: just did a, a job for you guys just a couple of days ago. Actually, it was in my shop. The Speed Core, the most recent carbon fiber car that they showed at the Grand National Roadster Show. It's called Ghost, right? It's a Vehicle, honestly, the most expensive vehicle that's ever been in my shop on my lift, which I was super scared of. But (laughs) it was also very cool for it to be here because the Grand National Roadster Show, it only happens a couple miles down the street from my house. So I figured it would be a good idea to interview them here, get the story of the car, then photograph it around town. But I'm actually really glad that you're mentioning all these things that you know what we do or you've heard about what we do. Have you seen what we do? Because most of those things that you just named right now, we do not for work. We do for the credibility. And I love that. What we actually do for work is what we mostly do for the OEMs. Nissan, Toyota, Ford, whomever. I've pretty much worked for most of the major manufacturers. A couple of them actually through you guys, including motorcycle manufacturers, Aprilia, Moto Guzzi. That's actually our real work if that makes sense. That's what we do to make a living. Most of the other stuff that we do, whether it comes to event, editorial, all the YouTube stuff, just purely for passion and for credibility. And it seems to have worked, you know, because doing that is just showing what we're capable of. And then a lot of times the OEMs appreciate that.
0: Well, one of the things that I wanted to kind of start off this conversation with, and and like we were talking about at the start of this, you know, mm-hmm. you and I have known each other and, and worked together for like 15 years now, and you've come a long way, and I think in some ways, I guess I have too, and and we've we've done a lot of interesting stuff, and we've had some crazy adventures, and I think back to like Virginia City hill climb type stuff, and I'm like, oh mm-hmm. man, that seems like a lifetime ago. But the one thing I'll say to anyone who ever brings you up, even beyond your talent, and I think you're probably the most talented automotive photographer working today, is that you're a nice guy. You are so nice, and you are, and you always have been since the first day I met you. You're just a, you're a regular person. You're approachable. I have kind of quietly sat in the background at SEMA show and places like that where I see people come up to you and says, so, especially since you got more active on YouTube and things like that, you're becoming pretty high profile. You're cool to everybody. Like, is that <laughs> just part of your personality, or is that something you work at? Like, how does that work with being a creative?
1: There's a couple things with that, right? There's a couple levels. Number one, we want to work with the people that we enjoy being around, not because they're more talented, but because we have to spend so much time together and we have to work well together. I think that's really number one. To your point about, you know, you saying I'm top, I honestly, not trying to be humble or anything, honestly, legitimately, don't think I'm at the top. And I see so many other people that are better than me, but- I try to be as reliable as possible. I try to be friendly, easy to work with, you know, deliver stuff in a timely manner. Like everything else is basically supporting my photography, you know, because all the time I I say this in in so many podcasts and so many videos, I'm standing next to these people that are my peers that I look up to that are so much more talented. And even if they're right next to me and we're shooting the same photo, I look at their photo. I'm like, doesn't it look like we're in the same place because your photo is so much better but that's not the point the point is you just have to think about all of it you know getting to the track early even just remembering people's names making friends going just a lot deeper on the business sense and that's i know your team has really strived to to do exactly that that's why people keep calling you guys for work because it's that reliability and it's also just being cool to be around i mean think of how much time you actually have to spend with all the people that you work with, something like the SEMA show, oh my God, talk about day in and day out. If if it's a punchable face, somebody that you don't (laughs) want to be with, then it's a rough time, you know? It's a rough entire show. So I think about that a lot. You know, everybody has their moments. I have my moments. Another thing you're saying about interacting with fans, I was never meant to be in front of camera. Never, ever, ever. Always been an introvert, just like most people don't know, Ken Block super introverted, you know, I feel like he was just never meant to be in front of camera. But we were kind of forced to do this because it's opened so many doors for me so much so many doors for me to be able to keep doing what I'm doing in a greater capacity and a more grand capacity. So I've taken it and I've ran with it, which also means that these individuals that look up to me or follow my work, every single personal interaction is just as important as the next one because that potentially could be the first time and last time that person is ever going to meet me. And that happens all the time all over the world. You know, luckily, because of the reach of automotive media now, I'm able to tell my story to all these people, and the fact that they watch the stuff, I can't tell you how it makes me feel. You know, it makes me feel so good that it's actually making an impact on on these people's lives. So I really take it personally. You know, that's why I always try to carry stickers with me to give to people as just like a personal memento for even watching my stuff. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so fun, is it? I, I mean, a lot of this stuff also comes from my speed hunters days when they were all about car positivity, right? There are so many websites, as you know, and also outlets that may be more towards the negative side, because it gets a lot more views. And that's okay. You know, that's just the style of their media. But then for us, when we're talking about car culture, and the beauty of cars, or the ugliness of the car, or the performance and all that, it's so much easier just to be positive about it, ignore the negative stuff, and just show why the owner loves it and why these people do what they do. So I've really taken that, and I've just moved it on to video and pretty much everything that we do. We really try to be positive about these builds, even though some of the work could be shoddy, but their intention was really good. Or their, their idea behind it. Or maybe they just didn't have that much money to build it to begin with, you know? And we like to highlight all that stuff.
0: You know, that's such a good point. And I remember my very earliest jobs in automotive media when I was still working at the magazines. I think I showed up at a show in like the 90s, like the late 90s. And I saw like some ugly build that like I'm looking at it and like, why did this guy make all these choices? And I was standing there with an editor who was an older guy and he kind of grabbed my arm. And he's like, dude, don't do that. I was like, why? He's like, cause this guy probably invested his life savings in this car. And just because his tastes aren't aligned with yours, or maybe he comes from a different era or a different area or whatever. He's like, he's a car guy and he's here. yeah, And I never did that again. And I thought, you know, that's a valid point. I never really thought about it until what you just said, but you're right. I mean, going back to the very early days of speed hunters back then, it was also very tribal, like a Mustang site covered Mustangs or magazine and a, you know, drift outlet only covered drift and speed hunters was kind of wild back then because it was covering everything and globally, which was back then, I think very unusual, right? Like to you see yeah. stories on car culture in Northern Europe and Japan
1: here. Exactly. And, and it was ahead of its time. And honestly, Speedhunter single-handedly blew up a lot of pieces of car culture, like legitimately, you can source it back to it. You know, you can trace it back to, for example, RWB or even Rocket Bunny, you know, the Overfender nationals, yep. you know, it, it's overwhelmingly was like such a big part of SEMA for a couple of years. And it was just a single person that pretty much sparked it all. But of course, that story had to be broken somewhere, you know, and that's the crazy thing is, like you said, everything was tribal. And if you got a Mustang magazine, you got the Mustang magazine, or if you got Option magazine, it was all in Japanese and you couldn't understand it or read it anyways. But to be able to see worldwide car culture in just one place was really, really nice and really ahead of its time. And honestly, it was more of a preview of what it is like now on YouTube. You know, think of all the creators that you can follow worldwide that are telling their story from where they are. It is, it's so cool. It really is. And you know, what's interesting to me is recently, you know, shooting this year's season for Capturing Car Culture, I'm seeing these cars, I'm meeting these creators, their work is so good. It is so good. Like the cars are top level, the content that they shoot are top level, but they may just not get that many views because they're just starting out or... It's in a different language, and so that's why it's still such a big thing for me to actually go to these places to tell these stories and maybe give them a little bit of a jump start because it could explode from there, you know.
0: I love it. Yeah, you're the Anthony Bourdain of car culture. It's it's cool. <laughs> you yeah,
1: uh, wait till you see the season opener. I I snuck in some food stuff there, so nice. A lot of people are saying that, so I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna do some street food stuff. I'm just gonna <laughs> do some food stuff in a car show, you know.
0: <laughs> well, and I, I think, you know, there is an art of craft element to the car thing that not everybody outside of it understands is that like, you don't necessarily have to be like Corey Burns, who, who I work with, who obviously, you know, who you're, you're friends with and Corey's never owned a low rider, but every time he sees a really well executed one, he loses his mind. Yeah. And I think part of it is that art of craft thing where you just have to respect the time and the effort. And I, I kind of feel the same way. Like I don't own one. I'm not sure if I, I will, I'd like to one day. But when you see a car that's got like hand engraved brake rotors that look like a work of art you could hang on your wall, somebody spent a lot of time and money and energy just learning how to do that before they ever even did it.
1: Well, when I look at those, I just think about how badass you would feel when you're driving that down the road. Yeah. Just just going slow, you know just going the speed limit, that would just be so cool.
0: So let's go back a little bit. And for those that are listening, you know, you've got some pretty cool deals going right now. You've got your Haggerty show. And then you, I know you have a relationship with Toyota and you've done a bunch of builds with them. You work with Canon as as a, an explorer of light. You know, you're kind of an ambassador and I know you've taught some classes. And so obviously you're working with some of the biggest, coolest brands in the world. But let's go back. First couple of times you picked up a camera, like where'd that all start? How'd you get into it? How'd you learn? Did you go to school for it? Was this something you just learned by doing?
1: Yeah, I I just learned by doing it. I learned when I was going to those races and autocrosses and the events that my friends and I would actually go to, I would always bring my camera. And even if I was driving that same event, I would still take pictures or video or whatever. I I would just shoot media because I found that even if we were there, and this happens still today today. Even if I'm there at a show or a race, and I'm actually living the moment, people always come up to me and tell me, oh, I can't wait to see your picture. I'm like, listen, we're here now enjoying the (laughs) event. Why do you want to see it after the fact? you know, through my pictures, but I realized that it was a novelty. And it was also like a, a cool thing to see your own car through somebody else's eyes. And I just kind of ran with it. And it took quite a long time for me to get to a point where I even broke even by taking pictures or, or doing media, it pretty much like I started in 2004, taking pictures of cars, I've, I've told this story before, but like there was a goal, At one point in one year, I told myself, look, I have to break even. I just have to. I can't do all these odd jobs, building computers, selling nuts, like peanuts, just doing different things. I mean, there's just so many jobs that I did just to fund this hobby of traveling the world, taking pictures of cars. It got to the point, I think it was around maybe 2009. I was like, look, I have to break even somehow. I have to. And luckily that year I was able to break even. And then the next year I told myself, look, I have to take home for the entire year, take home $10,000. If I made $10,000 for the year, I would be so happy. And I was able to hit that goal. And then the next year, that's when I got picked up by speed hunters and I started working with you guys. And then it just slowly went up year after year after that, because it wasn't an overnight thing. You know, now it's been 20 years. It's just baby steps every single time there's no just quick shortcut. It was just, you know, shaking all those hands, meeting all those people, making friends, the same people that I started with all those years ago, back in 2005 and six, same people I used to work with at like Drifting Magazine. And back then it was what Prime Media, whatever, are the same people I work with today. But guess what, now they're in these crazy high up positions in car manufacturers at other OE suppliers, wheel, tire manufacturers, you know, we're all doing the same thing, but just in a different capacity. And being able to work with those people, it, it's just so good. It just feels so good. It's awesome.
0: Was there anyone early on that took you under their wing to say, hey, let me show you what you're doing right and let me show you some ways you can improve and tag along?
1: I think, like I said before, really the people that inspired me and the people that made me push harder were the people that I started with and the people that I shot with. And part of it is because we would give each other personal challenges. Oh, interesting. You know, especially if we were at the same event, we would just see who could do better, not for monetary purposes or anything. It was just to really push the envelope of car photography because what we were doing back then, and still, even to this day, I think, man, this is so dumb. It doesn't make any sense. There's really no guidebook for most of the stuff that we're doing.
0: No, it's art. It's subjective. Well,
1: yeah. And then there's just really no like, I can't just Google a lot of these things because a lot of these things we try to be the first or we try to be very early adopters of this thing that we're doing, whatever it is. Even, you know, you mentioned Canon Explorer of Light. Out of the 35 Explorers of Light, I'm the only car photographer. The other photographers are surfing. Wedding, portraiture, conflict photography, news, you know, landscape, art, whatever, fashion, a lot of fashion photographers, nothing wrong with that. But it's just something that is more rare, or more of a niche, you know, in the grand scheme of content creation worldwide. We have to do a lot of learning as we go. And most of the processes that me and my guys have figured out over the years, we try to do what we can and we we share it. That's kind of where the education portion comes in. We try to share as much knowledge as possible because it really is elevating content creation and car photography overall if we share this knowledge.
0: And that's why I asked, because I was curious if you had mentors, because I know you are mentoring a lot of people and both on your own team, but even just in general. And as someone who pretended to play with the camera back when they were film and never got all that far down that road, but who works with a lot of photographers, you have changed what automotive photography, especially motorsports photography looks like. And I think if a person was to look at coverage from any event today, even events that maybe you and your team don't cover, it looks a lot more today like what your stuff did a couple of years ago. And I think that you're sort of moving the needle a little bit and then everyone else is trying to say, okay, well, we
1: need that too. Mm, I appreciate that. Is
0: that intentional or is that just like you're going down the road trying to figure stuff out and then kind of the world's following along?
1: Yeah. So in terms of recent like mentorship wise the person i really look up to is Wart. Uh, i don't know if you've ever worked with Jeff Wart. yeah you know, he, he is me but just 30 years ago our careers are exact pretty much exactly the same you know he used to do pike's peak photography you work for motor trend and then he slowly got into directing and motion which is what i'm getting into now and then also he loves racing and driving and he's still racing today that's like everything i want in life right Doing what I love in terms of photography, directing, cinematography, directing commercials, which we're starting to do now. And then racing on that level where he gets all these invitations. I told him flat out. First of all, I'm very candid about the fact that I tell everybody that I wish he was my dad. But I tell him, like, especially at, uh, at these events where I'm like, Porsche literally invited you to drive their 917, the Gulf livery, $30 million, maybe more car. The car. The car or one of three cars or whatever. Am I going to be in that same position 30 years from now? I don't know. Will there be these opportunities? Who knows?
0: But also like you, he's also a really nice guy. Yeah. And he is easy to work with. He's not like, I mean, I won't name names, but there are creatives out there that are not so easy to get along with. And I think they can kind of get away with that because, oh, well, they're a creative. And it's like, yeah, but they don't have to be a dick.
1: Yeah, that, that's the thing is, like I said, there's, there's so many good shooters out there, but they just maybe sometimes it's just a little more difficult to work with them. And then they get weeded out. You know, that's the thing in terms of like the style, what you're saying about people shooting things that may look like what I'm doing. I was more just taking advantage of the available technology and just pushing it every single time pushing it. And this is the simplest thing. Okay. Very early on, people would ask me, why is it that your photos are so much clearer? And I, I was thinking, like, what does that even mean? You know, what, what is that clear? what th- That could mean so many things. And I realized what I was doing was I was just doing something I would have liked when I was just starting, which is publishing huge, as big as possible for what browsers, monitors, what bandwidth was able to handle, you know, I would pay for the extra hosting costs or whatever, just so I could display my photos in the grandest way. Even if the monitors weren't that crazy, even if HD wasn't a thing yet, I was publishing beyond what these computers could handle. And I was publishing a lot, like everything, or at least the best stuff. You know, it was one thing to do a website, it's like a blog post, okay, like three pictures or whatever, I would break this website, like speed hunters, I would break that website all the time, it'd be like 100 photos in a post. And everyone is so curated. And so thought out. It's not just like the same photo over and over again. It's different angles. It's shooting the people. It's shooting the texture, the whatever, every, everything like the destruction, the colors, the beauty, the surroundings, sometimes food. It was everything. And that's what I really liked. I think it was just that. I mean, it was like a, more of like a media blast. And I was always OK, 100 percent with not watermarking my photos and just having people take them and share them and like them and enjoy them. Even today, people will notice that I don't water my my photos because I want them to live on. I don't want to just hold them close and not let anybody take them, you know? I don't really even care. Realistically, what harm is it going to do if somebody takes my photo and prints it out and puts it on their wall? That makes me so happy, you know? Because I say this time and time again, when I'm gone, my photos are going to live on for way longer than I'm around. I wouldn't say that's my goal, but... It's just going to be a side product of what I'm doing. You know, I've shot millions of photos in my lifetime already. Think of how much media, magazines and books and posters that exist in the world and automotive that I've had a hand in. And, you know, that, that, that means a lot.
0: What a generous way to think about what you do. That's a really cool perspective. I wonder if in all the stuff that you do, Larry, and and certainly some of the stuff like you said earlier, you're doing to push the limits or you're doing to kind of get new experiences. Obviously, some gigs you do are corporate. Do you ever show up and just hit a wall where you're just blocked? Either you're not interested in the subject or just it's not working out or like you're just going, man, today's not my day. From the outside, it looks like everything you do is pretty killer. (laughs) But I imagine uh, uh, you have tough days like everybody else. So oh, yeah. w- what do you do in those cases?
1: All the time. A lot of times, especially when a lot of things are on the line, I usually have a bad day until you break that seal. Like that one hump of either getting the first good photo or getting the first shot in the bag. Then it's like, okay, then it's easy street from there. A lot of times we do take on these challenges that we may not be the most comfortable with. And we kind of have to learn as we're doing. But that's the thing is, I can't just call somebody and be like, Hey, how do we do this thing? How are we able to photograph this car this way or close down the street? There's just so many variables to creating media, especially if we're trying to execute someone else's vision, when it comes to launching a car, or when it comes to showing off a car, the lines or whatever, there's just so much. So a lot of times, we can rely on a little bit of our experience over the years. Sometimes we just can't. So me and my guys, sometimes we're just running around with our heads cut off. Like, you know, it's a lot of figuring out as we do. But luckily, because we have the foresight, a lot of times, and we have the experience, most of the time, we can pretty much figure it out. I mean, knock on wood, I haven't really had a big project fail. And part of it is because I just won't let that happen. I just can't. We just can't afford that to happen. But also, we really just pride ourselves in being able to do what we love to do. Luckily, we're not launching pedestrian, everyday commuter cars all the time. Most of the time when people reach out to us, they're usually enthusiast cars. Not to say we don't like launching the pedestrian cars, because we actually take that as a challenge to make these ordinary cars more interesting.
0: That would be harder though, right? Yes. Like a just a normal passenger sedan.
1: That happens all the time. Recently with, with Nissan, we helped them launch most of the lineup from Versa to Sentra to Rogue. We just did a thing for the Frontier. There's something interesting about all of them. And I love looking at the comments, especially on Reddit and especially like Autoblog, whatever. These photos that get released of a lot of these cars, most of the time it's the first time somebody's ever seen this car. And maybe it's just a blip on the radar. But to me, it's very important because you got to make a good first impression. And then also we're making these cars kind of similar to like the Datsun 510 or the Volkswagen Golf we're making these pedestrian cars that are people's first cars look as good as possible. You know, like, you can't just jump in and get a Toyota Supra or or Corvette right away. You know, you have to start somewhere in the car world. And if it's a new car, it may just be their first entry level car that we still have to make as good as possible. And look what the Toyota 86 has become or the Datsun 510 has become like, They've become legendary as pedestrian cars that nobody wanted, that were so cheap that people drove every single day. And now they're just beyond, you know, it's so cool to see. So we put just as much care and effort into each one of those cars. I
0: love that. You've you've talked about your team a few times. Can you kind of break down what is the structure of your team and your organization and how does that all work?
1: So right now, it's six of us. Technically, it's seven of us because I have somebody overseas that works for us a lot. So my second in command or my partner in crime, Lewis, that you've met and you've worked with a lot, I've been working with him for over 10 years. And all the other people on our team are very, very passionate. I just appreciate them so much every single day. And we're just a bunch of nerds. You know, we just love drifting. We love going to the racetrack. We love tinkering on our cars. Lewis brought his... R33 Skyline to put on his titanium strut bar that he brought from Japan this last trip. I'm, I'm just looking at it right now. It's such a beautiful car.
0: Is everyone a photographer or are some of the people on your team designers?
1: The structure is, uh, you know, I shoot stills, I shoot video, I edit stills. And I edit video, but not like on the ground actually doing the cuts. I give direction for that. Lewis is able to shoot video and shoot stills and edit stills. He's basically a copy of me same thing so he does directing you know producing all that stuff and then we have one person that specializes just in two two people that specializes just in editing video and then we also have two people that can do both so it is like we can kind of all do each other's jobs maybe not to the best ability but we all have kind of our specialties and we all can fill in for each other and we do have one person full-time that just deals with logistical stuff around the shop, getting the the vehicles prepped for chasing Baja 1000 or going to Formula Drift or my SEMA build or whatever, you know, there's just always so much going on. That's why I just need help. As much as I like to do all this stuff myself, I just have to hand stuff off, you know, and it's the same way with you, I know. Yep.
0: That's pretty cool that you've built that organization. I, uh, I'm really happy for you. That's awesome. You've got this crazy career, Larry. And I mean, like I had a moment on Saturday of this past weekend where I woke up at Hammer's Was there for the start of the race. And right as things were getting pretty much to the end, I didn't want to get stuck in traffic. And I hopped in my truck and I got out of there as quick as I could because I had to go on there to Grand National and kind of started my day on the lake bed and ended my day at the Grand National Roadster Show and was in my own bed by 11 o'clock that night. And it was admittedly a stressful day just because it was so busy. But then I looked back and went, man, I'm getting paid for this. Like I can't really complain. This is cool, you know? and, And 20 year old me would be freaking out. When you look back on your career, like what stands out? What are the highlights? What are the ones where you kind of go holy crap this is my job
1: uh so many i'm so lucky to be able to do what i do it's a lot i don't know there's just a couple standout moments i guess me being able to drive all these events and photograph the same event it's just so dumb it doesn't make any sense like i'm talking about actually jump out of the car in my race suit have my camera and i'm shooting and then it's like my turn to drive and then I jump into the race car. It's just like that. That those moments, I'm always like, man, pinch me, I must be dreaming. <laughs> or more recently, when we're uncovering these car culture stories and just meeting these people and making friends all over the world, there's just nothing like it. It's like my special day, I guess. Every day, the, the way I put it, n- nothing against wedding photographers, but a lot of times it's tough for them because they're shooting someone else's special day and they have to really consider that. Man, when I pick up my camera, it's my special day every day, really. It's just too much fun. A lot of people ask me this. They're like, how is it that you don't get burned out? And how is it that you are able to just stay interested in all this stuff that you do? Well, lucky for me, I'm able to shoot everything. It's not just one thing. It's not just drifting. It's not just time attack. It's legitimately everything that the car culture world has to offer, whether it be drag racing, land speed, car shows, you know, stance stuff. It doesn't matter. Rally. I I don't care what it is. If it has four wheels or even two wheels, if it has some sort of transportation aspect to it, then I'm there, you know, I'm interested in it. And honestly, if I did get burned out, I would stop. But I just don't really know what else that would keep me interested. You know, I, I don't really know what else would make me so happy I, I just i love it too much it's, it is just a good time sometimes i think it's like wow this is just so crazy that i'm doing this right now but it's, it's just a lot of fun and the best part is it's not just for me you know I, i'm experiencing this stuff but i'm showing it to the world you know whether it be through my shows or still photos on instagram you know people can follow along with me and that's the beauty of it
0: i saw a post i can't remember what platform it was on Of you shooting yourself drifting.
1: Mm, Yeah. And I
0: thought that was wild. Like, can you explain what you did there? Because that kind of blew my mind a little bit.
1: Yeah. So (laughs) I did the same thing. This is going to sound so dumb. But I did the same thing at my wedding.
0: Okay. You shot your own wedding.
1: Yes. In 2013, it was just a very small, intimate thing. And it was in Hawaii. I set up five remote cameras. And we just did the thing. You know, it just happened. And then afterwards, I just kind of saw all the cameras and looked at the cameras and see which ones came out. It worked out, but it wasn't so much a pride thing as it was like, we kind of have to do this, just like bring somebody over from the mainland to to follow us. I think it was just something that was a quirky thing that I just wanted to do and, and it worked out. So then I was thinking a lot of people ask me this question, if you're driving, who's taking pictures of you? I was thinking, you know, well, Usually it's my guys that are taking pictures of me driving. But how fun would it be if I was taking pictures of myself driving? And that's just exactly what we did. I set up uh, my camera at a corner by corner at uh, Apple Valley Speedway, which is uh, our local drift track. They're so good to work with. And we love shooting there because they pretty much let us have full reign of the place. So corner by corner, I just set up a camera. And as I'm passing through that corner... I'll just trigger the remote with my mouth. (laughs) That was the part that was crazy is you're you're using your mouth. The funny thing is they actually build a mouth trigger that's a button and it's like a rubber piece that you put put in between your teeth and then you can trigger the camera that way. I just figured it'd be funny if I just put the remote straight (laughs) in my mouth, you know, and the photos may not have came out the best, but I just thought it was fun just to be able to say that I did that. And it's something that I envisioned a long time ago and it worked out. But for the longest time, my driving didn't match that, you know, like I couldn't place the car exactly where I wanted to until I picked up drifting about two years ago now. Now I feel comfortable with actually doing that kind of project, you know?
0: I think it's amazing that you shot yourself drifting because that's a relatively low risk deal. The fact that your wife was cool with you shooting your own wedding (laughs) speaks very highly of her and her trust Uh, in you because I don't know a lot of brides that would be cool with that. So that's...
1: Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you marry a photographer, (laughs) I guess.
0: (laughs) So I want to get kind of new agey for a second. You are very clearly an emotionally intuitive person and beyond the fact that you're very kind and you're nice and I've seen you kind of interact with people and and how you kind of treat your own team and fans just the stuff you're saying today you know and the fact that like you know the fact that you want to leave something behind in your work and do you think that that impacts the work itself because photography can be a pretty emotionally powerful thing is it a requirement to be sort of emotionally intuitive to be a good artist or or no
1: hmm That's a good question.
0: Like, are you communicating emotionally through your photographs? Or are you just trying to capture a moment? Or are you trying to tell more of a story than that?
1: It's tough. I'm not really a decisive moment photographer. I'm not. I'm not that guy. I take my time. And a lot of times I just have to take it for what it is. I like to be very honest and truthful with my photography. I like to show people what it looked like to me, at the moment. So you'll see, like, I, I'm not going to Photoshop a crazy cloud or crazy mountain in the background, or whatever. I do everything practically. And part of it is because that's what I know, you know, with a lot of these cars, like, for example, the Speedcore ghost car, maybe other photographers that could have just taken it into the Walmart parking lot, and they could have just Photoshopped a huge landscape background or whatever or, or was at, at a racetrack or this cool downtown scene. But instead, I don't know how to do that stuff. I'm more of a natural and practical photographer. So I'll do everything practically. And it's the real deal. The way you see it in the photo is the way it looked like in real life. I don't think I put too much emotion in it. I mean, does that does that make sense?
0: It does. What's your take on... I mean, so you brought it up. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I know a lot of your stuff is... I mean, I'm sure you guys do a little bit of fine tuning, but... Yeah, we have it to. Is, pretty much what came out of the camera and, and, and there's certainly a thing that's happening now where, you know, there are some photographers out there for better or for worse, that what what's coming out of the camera, you know, they're doing stuff handheld, low light, and then yeah, all of a sudden you see the final product and you're like, oh my God. Like that's and and clearly there's huge amounts of work going on in, in Lightroom or Photoshop, yeah. or whatever. Is that good? Is that bad? Is it just a different type of thing? What's your take on that?
1: I think it's a different style. And what's good is For a while, it seemed like CG and also AI was taking really like the stage front and center in terms of like what manufacturers are looking for. For the longest time, they were looking for that really polished look and they were looking for a car that looked perfect. But now it's come full circle where they want it to actually be realistic and they want more of it, which you just can't do and you can't make financial sense of doing everything in CG. Why would you want to make it imperfect in CG? It, it just costs so much more still now to do everything in CG. So, and there's a lot of things lost in it, you know. Especially when you're talking about what a lot of stuff we do for Toyota is the trucks, and we try to show them in their element, off-roading, dirty. And there's a lot of things that just don't translate, All right. There's a lot of things that you just can't fake, like handprints on the door from the dust, or the way the mud flings and All of that stuff, they actually like it. And it's actually compared to CG and compared to heavily Photoshop stuff. It's actually way cheaper to do practically. And who knows what can come from it? You know, it could show the product in a different way. It's come full circle though, where I noticed that a lot of the work that we're doing is less polished, because maybe it's more relatable. I don't know. But it's just what we specialize in. We obviously have to use a lot of post processing too. But what we're doing is fixing our mistakes. And what we're also doing is we're trying to match the photos to each other. And in order to do that, it just takes a lot of time. Plus, we're doing the obvious things, especially that the manufacturers would want us to do, right? Like take out the porta potties in the back. Nobody (laughs) wants... A photo of a car with a porta potty in the back. And that's pretty difficult most of the time when you're at a racetrack, as you know, because there's porta potties everywhere. But I don't know, it's just maybe in the age of social media too. It's like everybody's consuming this content so quickly, so fast, and maybe not at the most high resolution, it doesn't even matter. They they'd rather just have more of this stuff that people can consume.
0: That's really interesting. One of the mottos I live my life by is make every mistake once. And, and I, it's kind of how I learn is by usually kind of screwing something up and then going, oh, okay, can't, can't do that again. So a question I, I ask a lot on this show is, if you think back over your career, what is one mistake that you can think of that you made that really stands out and, and what did you learn
1: from it? That's a really good question. I feel like we make mistakes pretty much every day still. <laughs> no matter what, me and my guys, we, we go through the, the motions of doing all this stuff and we honestly are learning so much every day because we do make mistakes every day because so many things can go wrong like everything like you wouldn't believe the smallest things i mean it could be something as as easy as just forgetting to bring something one battery for one thing that runs the rest of the things or one cable, right? It, it could be anything, or it could be something dumb. I don't know, we just call it dummy proofing ourselves. And so we take all these extra steps to double, triple, quadruple backup or have fail safes for a lot of things we do. But I guarantee you every single time we pick up our camera, there's always something new where it's like, oh man, I, I can't believe we didn't think about this. So we're, we're learning and we're, we're trying to develop our method constantly and it's great because as new people come on board to help us we give them like a really good accelerated path to get to that point where they understand all this stuff and this is the stuff that very specific to automotive media that may not translate to anything else that's the crazy thing we're learning every day we literally make mistakes every day i can't think of anything specific right now but i i know yesterday even i just made a mistake where i was like i just can't do that again You know, I gotta or at least we gotta try not to do that again.
0: That's cool. So you're building SOPs as you go. You're building kind of a standard operating procedure to prevent those issues. And that's
1: Yes. That's yeah. kind of a
0: good life lesson. That's just not a not a creative or photographer thing. That's building a business.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it is so specific to us. I couldn't imagine what we do. It's such a small scale. And realistically, in the grand scheme of things, as a production company, we're very small, but we're very specialized. So I couldn't imagine what something like that would look like for a way bigger company.
0: So to close things out, if someone was listening right now that dreams to do what you do, they want to be a creative they, they want to do this for a living or even they just want to like be around car stuff all day. You know, what advice would you give them? What would you say?
1: We welcome you. There's not enough of us, really. Me and everybody that I've talked to, and I'm assuming you too, we're all looking for more help, mm-hmm. like people that are willing to put in the hours and people that are passionate. And it's funny because from the outside, everybody looks at it and they're like, "Ah, oh, it's too saturated. It's not. It's not at all. We need more help. We need more people because now more than ever, the appetite for this content and the appetite for automotive in general, transportation is bigger than ever. It is so crazy. I just don't have enough time. I don't have enough weekends. I don't have enough manpower to get all the stuff done that we want to do because there's just too much to do. There's never been a time, I feel like, in history where it's like that. I mean, you could just look at the demand for cars. There's never been a time where these manufacturers can't make cars fast enough. They just can't. We went to the Toyota factory in Tahara outside of Nagoya this past year. And I look and I'm like, so it's every minute a new car is coming out and these are already sold, every one of these, all 400,000 from the year. And they're like, yeah, we we can't make them fast enough. We need another factory. (laughs) Like that is crazy. That is insane. That's so cool. That's a really
0: cool and beautiful sentiment from a really cool person. Thank
1: you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me.
0: Yeah, thank you for being on. So that is it for this episode of Only the Strong Survive, powered by Con Media, featuring the incomparable Larry Chen. Larry, where can people find more about you if they want to follow you?
1: You can follow me on Instagram, Larry Chen. You can follow me on my YouTube channel. It's also Larry Chen. We have a show on the Haggerty YouTube channel, which is called Capturing Car Culture. And you can download all the free high-res wallpapers you want on my website, which is larrychenphoto.com. Awesome.
0: I hope everyone found today's conversation interesting. If you did enjoy this show, I would encourage you to rate, share, review, and give feedback on whatever platform you use to enjoy podcasts. You can also reach out and talk to us directly. Just email me at otss at conmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Dan Kahn. Thanks for joining us.